This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the US-China Trade War Update with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post. It's the last Friday of October, it's the last Friday before China reveals its new five-year plan, and it's the last Friday before the United States goes to the polls to decide who will be president for the next four years. You could say it's a pivotal time, and we've got another bumper edition to debate these issues and to analyse how they coalesce. In the first part of the show, our own political economy desk's John Carter will join me along with a new voice from the SCMP, William Jung from our China desk, a politics buff who follows the inner workings of Zhang Nanghai closer than just about anyone I know. The guys will discuss the overlap between China's policy plan and the US election. Is China turning more inward? And which election candidate does Beijing want to win? Then I'll be joined by Andy Rothman, a respected economist who spent many years as the head of macroeconomics at the US Embassy in Beijing. Andy lays out the different scenarios facing the Chinese economy after the US election. He also compares China's strong economic recovery with the nascent green shoot we've seen from the US this week, even as their coronavirus pandemic spirals out of control. Finally, friend of the show Ben Kostreva returns to give us a lowdown on what it's been like to work as a China-facing trade lawyer during the most tumultuous time in global trade of our lifetimes. Ben is a former USTR staffer, he lives and works here in Hong Kong, and he has a great perspective on all things US-China trade. So we were chuffed to get him back into our podcast studio in the days leading up to the election. Lots to get through, so enjoy the show, and we'll see you on the other side. It's Friday, it's the end of October, and we're almost at the point of the US election. We'll come to that shortly. But this week in China, there has been more domestic issues to discuss. Uh, We've just had the end of the fifth plenum, at which China's policymakers decide on what is going to be the plan for the next five years. A communique came out from the Chinese Communist Party last night, Thursday, and this morning we had a long press conference in which uh, officials outlined what to expect in the next five year plan. I'm joined by John Carter from our political economy desk and William Jung from our China desk at the South China Morning Post to get a few more details on this. William, thanks for joining us. We're very keen to learn what are the clues from within this very long, dense press conference and communique that you've extracted to see what we might expect in terms of trade, economy and plans for the US over the next five years? Um, In fact, this morning, I think the whole tone for the press conference was, yes, we are going to be self-reliant, but please hear us up. We are not closing our doors. And whoever wants to work with China on technology, on trade, on all other issues, we are are still keeping our doors open. So uh, this message was delivered by those few uh, key officials, key party officials who are in charge of the drafting of the five-year plan. So it's quite clear that they didn't, China didn't want the outside world to read them uh, uh, wrongly because they still want the world knows that as the press is actually talking to all the foreign press and all this, they, they still want the world to know that we, we still keep our doors open. If you want to work with us, we are still open. Mm-hmm. 
And secondly, one thing uh, that actually struck me as a political reporter for the most of the, my career, it's the first time that the party is in charge of the presser. And uh, previously, it's always the uh, state council information office and, you know, the background is always blue. And this is the first time you see a red, party mm. red background on the presser and all the officials carry their party title ahead of their government title. Mm. And uh, they have made it very clear. And this is a party presser. This is just the beginning. And the party's central committee is going to have new press conference after after all this. So despite all these uh, uh, all these efforts from um, Pompeo talking about uh, we should separate the CCP, the Communist Party from the Chinese people, and and obviously I th I think the Communist Party is not shine out from this whole, th mm. whole, whole scene. So they've responded by saying, okay, we heard what America is saying, but we're just going to make ourselves more visible. And yes. Rather than separate the party from the state, we want to make them inseparable. And, and the party is in charge of the five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And this morning, actually, Han Wenxiu, the key official uh, within the party, uh, drafting the, the 14th uh, five-year plan, he specifically mentioned about she is the one leading the whole drafting team mm -hmm. and followed by Li Keqiang, Premier, and, uh, and a few other uh, standing committee members. Mm -hmm. So the message is very clear. The party is in charge. The party is in charge and they want to become more self-reliant. Two key takeaways and turning to John Carter here. John, this is a message on the economy, at least, that has been quite strong coming out of Beijing in recent months. Um, perhaps they don't trust that they can rely on the world for growth. So they're looking internally. They're becoming more uh, trying to drive domestic demand. How does it fit in with, with everything we've heard in, in over the course of 2020? Well, you go back to May when uh, President Xi outlined the dual circulation strategy. That is, uh, dual refers to internal circulation, which is domestic demand. And uh, external uh, sector is, is exports. Um, and given the rising difficulties in the world, uh, not only coronavirus, but uh, diplomatically there are uh, contentious issues for China uh, in, in the rest of the world, that the, uh, China is turning inward. It's going to look to its domestic economy to drive growth in the future. And that depends in large part on the Chinese consumer because a, a Consumer spending is more than half of the Chinese economy now. So if the Chinese consumer steps up and spends, then this strategy will work. But if they do not, uh, for whatever reason, uh, then you have a problem. So we'll wait and see. Uh, exports, as you know, have been very strong recently uh, because of the coronavirus, because China is coming out of the, uh, the lockdown period much stronger than the rest of the world. And the rest of the world needs its uh, personal protection equipment and medications that China produces, as well as the consumer electronics that support the work and um, play at home movement. And so we'll wait and see uh, the details of how precisely China is going to implement mm -hmm. the dual circulation program were not laid out in either in the communique or in the press conference. That is remains to be determined, and we will know more 
uh, next March when the five-year plan is put before the National People's Congress, if I'm not mistaken. John, just to add to this, traditionally, on 3rd of November, that's the voting day in the United States, mm. uh, China government and the China, China's uh, Communist Party and the government will release their own draft of the full uh, five-year plan. That's, that's the draft that's going to be sent to the National uh, People's Congress for approval. So it's, it's quite interesting. When U.S. Yeah. is going into a vote, China will release its own version of five-year plan. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying is the way these two governments work uh, by some sort of uh, poetic twist the U.S. people will decide who runs the country, whereas the Communist Party will decide how they run the country. Yeah. And I think that sums it up very nicely. Oh, indeed. Yeah. So where does the trade war, where does the U.S. election figure with all of this? I mean, China is turning internal. It is looking to power itself with internal growth. How much of that do you guys think is because of the troubles it's had internationally, because of what Trump's been doing for the past four years, um, you know, or how much of it is just a natural growth trajectory for China? Well, f uh, first of all, um, a, a big part of this five-year plan is to be self-sufficient in technology. And this is where uh, the Trump administration has really clamped down on China, limiting its access, access to semiconductors, among other things. Um, and uh, this is, is a, a real risk to China's development because, as we all know, we're moving further and further into a digital world. And so the, the countries or the companies that control the uh, innovation of uh, things, all things digital, will control the economy of the future. So China knows this and China sees that the Trump administration has been very hard on it and it's the expectation is that whoever is elected president, that this trend will continue mm. being tough on China. So they have decided that they must, as a matter of survival really, um, um, move to try to develop their own core technologies and be self-sufficient in that. And so as much as the trade war has made it difficult for U.S.-China relations, the tech war I think is the, the major focus here and will be in the years ahead. Yeah, we're very used to trying to read the tea leaves out of uh, communiques, which can often be quite opaque, William, out of, um, out of China, out of Beijing. Is there anything in there that gives you any clues as to whether China would prefer Biden or Trump after Tuesday's poll? I, I have been reading all the uh, government official media and all the uh, official documents uh, one thing, please. Uh, first thing first, Global Times does not represent the party's voice or the Chinese government's voice. So it is a, what we call a nationalistic tabloid. It represents China's left-wing voice, nationalistic voice. Mm. But if you really go through People's Daily and uh, Xinhua News Agency, China's official CCTV, there is no mention of U.S. election and who do they prefer mm -hmm. since last month. And China is very, uh, and we, we do have military uh, sources told us that all the military um, reporters were told to stay away from U.S. election issues. 
And let's just focus on how are we training our troops better and yeah. all this. Military reporters in at the state media in China, yes. not SCMP, to be uh, clear. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the PL dailies yeah. and, and those equivalent. So a lot of times, if we are trying to read the Chinese uh, Communist Party's mind or the Chinese government's mind, we still have to stay at the, the, the state media or the party's mouthpiece. Uh, instead of going to Hu Xijin's uh, Twitter or whatever to, mm. to seek for clues. Although sometimes he does carry a kind of sentiment there. But however, so far China's main point is that's uh, Americans' internal business. We, we at the party or at the state, we don't want to mess with the issue. We had enough issue with the U.S. already mm. and uh, they don't want to be entangled with uh, the the for the accusation of China these China there China meddling in the election yes. or anything like that yeah yeah it's interesting I had a long conversation on Thursday morning with Max Bocas who was the former U.S. ambassador to uh, China under Barack Obama he is now an advisor to the Biden campaign on on China. I was surprised that he told me that uh, he thinks that China would prefer Biden. Um, why was I surprised by that? Because he's advising the Biden campaign, and this is exactly the kind of message they don't want to get out there. You know, because Trump would obviously, uh, the Trump campaign has obviously tried to paint um, what was his famous quote: "If if Biden wins the election, China will own the United States." Um, the me- messaging a little bit off off key there in terms of the Biden campaign, John. I would suggest. Yeah, but as we've seen, um, the China issue is not that big in this election, surprisingly so, in my mind, um, that there are other domestic issues, the coronavirus being front and center, of course, uh, that have dominated the the discussions in the campaign. And so um, issues like uh, Baucus saying that the, the Beijing would prefer Biden. I don't think that they resonate at all in the campaign, especially in the final days. Uh, there are very few undecided voters left, according to the polls. People have decided. People, uh, a record number of people have already mm. voted, um, and we just have to wait for the count. Yeah, at this and, point. I, and and just quickly, we had the over, overnight. We had the U.S. record GDP, obviously, off an incredibly low base. But right. what you're saying, Joe, John, is that um, that doesn't. It's too late for that to make any. People have made up their minds, so no material difference. Uh, in most cases, yes. And and to go back to the GDP figure, yes, it was a, a record increase, but as you say, from a low base, and we're still below the level we were at before the coronavirus started. And as you'll note, that the, uh, yesterday we had a record number of new infections in the uh, U.S. This is bigger than it was the first outbreak. And so it's getting much worse in the United States. And this has the potential for really devastating the economy in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter and into next year. And that is a big issue in the in the election this year. Yeah. William, can I ask you about uh, your plans for next week? Because as a political reporter, um, mm. you're going to be having to keep an eye on what's coming out of Beijing. Yes. But you're also, I'm sure, going to have one eye on the US election. Yes. Big week. Uh, I... Can I also uh, talk a little bit about uh, whether who do who would Beijing yes. love? Yeah, uh, to be to be really frank, if you put yourself into Beijing's shoes, uh, personally, I wouldn't mind Trump, a, a person who is less uh, consistent in his uh, uh, policies, and uh, 
someone who might hurt America's long-term growth um, potential by uh, man- destroying some of the trust, destroying some of the fundamental systems in there. And and in competition, when when she talk about competition, he always talk about in terms of hundreds of years, mm-hmm. right? So uh, long in the short term, uh, Trump does bite harder, mm-hmm. and uh, Beijing does feel the pain. But in the longer term, if I were Beijing, I'll be more than happy to see someone who mess up with the U.S. system and. Uh, and destroy the long-term prospect of the one of the greatest country in the world, mm. and then China would really stand a good chance. And secondly, the leaders like to compare it with each other, right? Comparing to Trump, everybody looks better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, so, so in the way, um, seriously, if Trump wins the election. Fortunately or unfortunately, I do think that Beijing will be will be have a relief side because, yeah. firstly, all the trade war uh, measures did not really kill Beijing, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, uh, Beijing has gradually stand gaining its own footing on this after the first round of shock. Of course, it still haven't find ways to settle all these. Uh, uh, chip supplies issues and for Huawei and all this, there's no answer. But uh, obviously, uh, they are very determined to develop their mm-hmm. own own stuff, which it's going to be very difficult, no doubt. But Beijing has is under no illusion of oh, if Biden coming up and we will be having a slightly more friendly uh, United States. No. Obviously, they, Beijing's mode is we will just treat it as that's it. Mm. And we are going to do it our, our own way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but given that, looking forward, having a Trump is better for them. Yeah. Yeah, with that, I mean, it's very easy. It's a convincing argument that you make, William. Um, you know, and that's again why I was quite surprised to hear a Biden advisor say, exactly, <laughs> you know, yeah. why, what, what is going on with that messaging? Um, we're sort of getting a little bit on on time here, John. I just wanted to ask, in terms of um, China's economy, anything on the horizon apart from the, uh, you know, the the, fi- the small matter of the five year plan and the U.S. election? But what have you got your eye on for the next few days? Well, tomorrow, that is Saturday. We will get the new official PMI data, Purchasing Managers Index. So this is a sentiment index of manufacturers, of uh, construction companies, of uh, service providers. And it has been very strong and it has been – it has previewed the uh, recovery in the Chinese economy. Uh, the new data is expected to be relatively stable. It might go up a little bit or go down a little bit, but stable at a relatively high level. And again, this underscores – what is expected to be a continued recovery in the Chinese uh, economy uh, in the fourth quarter and into next year. And so we will see tomorrow. But again, we expect it to um, point to further growth in China. Mm. Well, John, I hope you do get some some rest this weekend, William, as well, because it's going to be a big one next week. Uh, yeah. Indeed. What, a world, what will the world look like next Friday? We do not know, but we will be back then. Thanks to William. Thanks to John. I 
am joined on the line from San Francisco by Andy Rothman. Andy is an investment strategy at Matthews Asia. He's the former head of macroeconomics and domestic policy at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Andy is a long-term and very respected China watcher. It's great to have you on the show. Andy, thanks very much for your time. Ah, Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, first of all, you're you're quite bullish on China's economic recovery, and we've obviously seen a bit of a rebound in the United States as well. But we're focusing mainly on China. How do you see that recovery from the COVID lockdown at the start of the year? And how does it compare to other parts of the world which are maybe showing the green shoots of economic recovery without the underlying virus uh, under control situation? Well, the main reason that I'm bullish on the Chinese economic recovery from COVID is that they're one of the few places that really has COVID under control. Uh, You know, there hasn't been a COVID-related death in China since mid-April. The number of people in hospital is about 300, uh, down from 58,000 at the peak. So that's the most important thing. And, you know, I think the Chinese economy is about 80% back to where it was before COVID. And that's happened with a very modest stimulus, both in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, um, people's lives are just getting back to normal, and so is the economy. Yeah. We saw for number of months, it was uh, taking a long time for consumption to catch up with with, um, with output. So you had a lot of industrial production, retail sales were, were lagging badly. That seems to have been a bit of a rebalancing over the past couple of months. How do you see that, that, that part of the econo- economic um, structuring? Yeah, I think that too reflects the recovery from COVID and getting COVID under control. Uh, you can see that for a while, uh, even after the number of cases was brought down significantly, people were just nervous about going out and spending money in places where they had to congregate with others. So restaurants and travel, uh, those kinds of activities were, were quite depressed. But now that people are less worried about the virus, they are back to spending kind of as normal. So we've seen that auto sales, for example, are doing better than they were before COVID. New home sales are back to where they were before the virus. And other things, let's say travel, for example, during the October holidays, they were down, but they were only down about 20%, whereas during the April holidays, they were down about 60%. So I think that the consumer story is bouncing back and once again, uh, certainly on a relative basis, is the world's best consumer story. Yeah. Andy, we've got the election on your side of the pond next week. We're we're speaking on on Friday, October 30th. Um, I wonder maybe if you could just uh, cast your your mind back over the past four years uh, of of the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, It's obviously been uh, marked by the trade war, uh, by you know, rising U.S.-China rivalry. Uh, but still, the Chinese economy looks in decent nick uh, despite all of that. I wonder whether you can maybe have a little, uh, whether you could maybe give us an idea as to whether the Trump presidency has been a negative on the Chinese economy, the trade war has that been a, had a major impact, or do you think that China's come out of it relatively unscathed? Hmm. Okay, so let me give you the perspective of someone who's looking at this from a seat at an investment manager. Mm-hmm. From the macro perspective, it is remarkable how little impact what President Trump has done has had on the Chinese economy. 
this is still the strongest economy in the world, uh, is likely to be again next year, despite the tariffs and the so-called trade war and the technology sanctions and all of the rhetoric. Um, it, it's had very little impact. And then from an investment perspective, it's also had very little impact. Uh, the Shanghai market is doing quite well, up over, I think, 20%. And many of the Matthews Asia China funds and China-focused Asia regional funds are doing much better than that year to date. So, uh, And then the last point I'd make is that all this pressure from Washington, I don't think has had any impact on changing the structural problems in the Chinese economy mm. that a lot of people in Washington would like to see changed. Yeah. If anything, it's it's probably fueled um, China's look inward and, you know, its determination to perhaps become a bit more self-sufficient. These big ticket things like made in China, obviously they, they don't talk about it anymore. But what we what we hear from on the ground is that these things are very active and more active than ever, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think that you can look at it from two different perspectives. Uh, looking more inward in the sense that Chinese companies and the Chinese government are wary of becoming too dependent or of already be having become too dependent on American suppliers because of the fickleness of American government policy. But I don't think that this represents a desire to get away from globalization or to turn inward or to slow down the reforms, particularly if you look at the financial sector, I think the reforms and opening up have continued at a, at a good pace. Can I ask you about next week's elections and further further forward than that? Um, your, your latest note, you outlined a number of different scenarios. Uh, we don't know who's going to win at this point, but in, in any of those scenarios, do you see significant um, uh, impact on the on the Chinese economy, regardless of who will who wins and and their approach to China over the next number of years. Sure. Yeah. I've, recently, I've been writing and talking to investors about three scenarios for after the U.S. elections. And let me first make clear that I'm not in the business of calling the U.S. election. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I, we can look at what might happen after the election results are known, whenever that might be. Uh, so two of the three scenarios involve President Trump winning a second term, just because that's a possibility. Uh, so the first of those two scenarios I call Trump back to January. That would mean that if President Trump wins re-election, he would take U.S.-China relations back to where they were pre-COVID, which was not great, but not nearly as bad it is as it is today. Uh, remember that in January, just 10 months ago, President Trump said, these are his words, that U.S.-China relations had never, ever been better. He said that he and Xi Jinping were in love with each other. Uh, yeah, and that was just earlier this year. And then, of course, COVID intervened. So I think if he wins, he very likely will perceive that victory as validation of his handling of COVID and therefore no longer feel that he has to demonize China. You know, he calls COVID the China plague or the China virus mm -hmm. and blames China for all of the U.S. problems with the virus. He may not feel that way anymore. And therefore, I think if he wins, there's a 60 percent probability that he'll go back to where things were in January. And also keep in mind that he himself has never used the kind of aggressive confrontational language about China that his secretary of state and his attorney general have been using. But of course, it's hard to predict what President Trump's going to do on any issue. Yes. So there's still a 40% possibility that if he wins, he will not 
put the leashes on the Secretary of State and the Attorney General and others in his administration who believe inaccurately, in my view, that China represents an existential threat to America. And under that scenario, uh, things will continue to get worse in terms of the bilateral political relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, the third scenario, of course, is that Vice President Biden wins. And here, I think that there will be two major shifts in U.S.-China relations. The first will be that it will go from a strictly unilateral approach, because President Trump doesn't really work with U.S. allies on anything, and be a an effort by Biden, I think, to sit down with other democracies and say, what are the key issues where we can collaborate with China and the key issues where we need to jointly put pressure on them? Mm-hmm. And then the other big issue, uh, distinction, I think, would be it'll be less of a stick-oriented approach. We're going to put tariffs on. We're going to put sanctions on. And more of a carrot-oriented approach, kind of like the engagement approach over the last 40 years between Washington and and many other democracies in China that I think has been really productive. Hasn't solved all the problems Mm -hmm. with China, but it has resulted in dramatic improvements over the last several decades in the material lives and the personal freedom of most Chinese people, not all of them, and also improved China's behavior abroad. Yeah. Uh, so I think, but the, the other thing I want to emphasize is that even if U.S.-China political relations continue to deteriorate, there's no reason to believe that this is going to have a bigger impact on the Chinese economy or on in the investment environment than it has over the last year. Yeah, and I wonder, just to, to drill in on one of those points, um, Andy, the coalition of allies that we hear so much from um, about if, if Biden was to win, he's going to you know build bridges with the European Union, Japan, Korea, Australia, who, whoever else. Um, is that something that you think would be uh, so, something that in Beijing they would be worried about? Um, maybe China thinks it can handle... One um, confrontational relationship, but when the rest of the Western world is ganging up on China in economic and trade terms, maybe that's something that they would be worried about. Uh, No doubt. They're thinking carefully about how to respond to this. But I also think that if the approach from those democracies is one that is focused, as it has been in the last four decades, on bringing China into the community of nations and persuading them that if they want to be an economic superpower, they have to behave like one and follow the global rules, that China will not perceive this as an effort to foist Western-style democracy on them or promote regime change and recognize that they, too, have made pretty dramatic political changes over the last several decades. And these have not only benefited the average Chinese person, but they've also allowed the Chinese Communist Party to stay in power. And Andy, just wanted to, to finish up with one one quick question. Um, you, you're a bit of a decoupling skeptic, you know, having read your work, uh, you, you've, you've written over over the last couple of years that it's much more difficult than perhaps the, the rhetoric uh, makes out. Um, can you just give us an idea as to why you think decoupling is not going to happen and how difficult it would be to achieve even if somebody wanted to go about it. Yeah, I'd say I'm more than a skeptic about decoupling. I've been writing that it's impossible. Um, China, every year on average over the last decade, has accounted for about one third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth each year than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. How do you decouple from that? It's not feasible. Look at the role that China plays in supply chains for everything from pharmaceuticals to electronics. You're not going to decouple from that. And why would that be in anybody's interest? 
So it's just the wrong way to go about solving the problems. And uh, are you frustrated to hear, though, that this looks to be um, a talking point, Dana? And indeed, it's on the agenda of both presidential candidates, Biden and Trump. Is that a frustration for you? Well, I think it's a frust- it is a frustration because it's a distraction from having constructive policies which will improve the lives of all of us, including those in Hong Kong and on the mainland. Um, but if Vice President Biden wins the election, I am assuming that there's going to be more constructive rhetoric and policies coming out of his administration, but he's trying to be careful during the campaign not to be putting himself in a position where the Trump campaign can paint him as soft on China. Sure, absolutely. Andy, that's been great. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. We wish you well and stay safe over there on the west coast of the US. Thanks very much. Joined here in the South China Morning Post studio by Benjamin Kostjeva, who is a trade lawyer in Hong Kong with the law firm Hogan Lovells. Ben was previously a lawyer with the Office of the US Trade Representative in Washington, D.C., and he spent the past few years covering issues related to US-China trade. It's great to have him back in the studio. Welcome, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to ask you about how it's been working in this field, um, which was probably quite uh, non-mainstream a few years ago. But Trump, uh, you know, if the one thing—if you've done one thing for people covering trade, it's brought it into the <laughs> into the daylight. So, how has it been covering trade under four years of, of Trump, particularly China-facing role? You know, it, a friend of mine said that uh, being a trade lawyer under Trump is like uh, being a dentist if the president recommended that everyone eats candy. It may not be the best for the country, but it is uh, very good for business. And now after four years where in 2016, I don't think anyone was tracking steel tariffs or uh, rules of origin or 301 or export controls or sanctions, all of these areas that have uh, made for very busy work for me. They're now uh, 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 front page news around the world, and they are topics of conversation in now the second presidential election where it is being uh, where trade is a big topic for both candidates. Yeah. And are you expecting that uh, regardless of what happens, if Biden wins come Monday, we're speaking on on Friday morning here. um, But if Biden does win come Tuesday, rather, um, do you reckon that you're still going to be as busy over the next four years as, as you have been? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, that we are in a new era of of U.S.-China relations, and we're in a new era of international trade, where you know there's going to continue to be bilateral uh, negotiations amongst uh, for free trade agreement negotiations. Are going to continue to be. Uh, uh, tensions between U.S. and China. You know, in Washington, you can boil down most everything between policy, process, and politics. And uh, Biden will certainly change policy. He's much more of a result-oriented and a multilateralist, and he'll use more traditional avenues of policymaking in Washington. But the politics haven't changed that much. Um, There are still the drivers of U.S.-China tensions are going to continue, and the uh, apprehensions of the American people about China are going to 
to continue and the apprehensions of China about the United States are mm-hmm. going to continue. So I think it'll change in tone quite a bit, but there are still going to be you know, sanctions and customs orders and export controls, mm-hmm. trade remedy uh, you know, investigations, anti-dumping and countervailing duty. All, all that good th- stuff. <laughs> all, all, all that uh, keeps me busy in terms of my, uh, my day-to-day, that's not going to change a whole lot, even if, it, uh, if the tone changes a bit. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you maybe to compare uh, 2020 to 2016 and how China has featured in the debate. I feel like four years ago it was really only Trump banging the drum on, on China um, very loudly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's obviously grown arms and legs over the past almost four years. Um, did you think China would have been more prominent or has it featured more than you'd thought in the 2020 campaigning? I think it's... Uh uh, been a little bit less for a few different reasons, some strategic and some simply the way that it's happened. One, the pandemic has mm-hmm. taken all of the oxygen, and the Biden campaign, quite rightly, knows that the pandemic response for uh, from Trump is a winning issue for him. Whereas, um, you know, China might be a winning issue for Trump. And so Biden has done his best to sidestep a, a, a deeper conversation on, on China while still saying that he's going to be tough on China. And so it's been on the margins where the Biden and Trump campaigns have, when they talk about China, they talk about outflanking each other and who's going to be tougher, but not talking specifics. And the other thing that happened is that the second debate, which was supposed to be uh, focused on foreign policy, was canceled. And that uh, was a lost opportunity for the two candidates to contrast themselves on foreign policy. And, uh, And so I think that was another reason why China is just simply, while it's still very important, uh, the domestic issues facing the United States are front and center. You know, the the United States is in is in such a difficult place right now with the pandemic that the politics are still very local. Yeah, I- indeed. Um, I want to just ask you, as, as someone who lives and works in Hong Kong, has a China facing role, and obviously you're you're working for a U.S. firm. Um, how how would you tell the listeners? I mean. Every other conversation for me is about the election, and I'm sure in the role that you do, it's it's no different. Uh, are you sick talking about it yet? <laughs> well, uh, yes, I am. I'm a politics junkie I, I, since I was a, a kid, uh, but it feels like this election has been five years. You know, since the Republican primary in t- 2015, we have essentially been in a presidential election cycle, and that's been exhausting. So, uh, while I look forward to the election results, whether they happen on Tuesday or pro- probably more likely in the days thereafter, I am looking for a break from the the day to day discussions of politics. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And and before we finish, I just wanted to ask you. I mean, you're a former employee at the the USTR. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of speculation about who the, the next USTR may be, um, even if, if Trump wins or if, if Biden wins. But I'm wondering, given everything that's happened over the past four years and the prominence at which uh, China has, has taken in the US political debate, do you feel that um, it's important for that figure to have some sort of China background? Or how do you see that? You know, I think it'll come down to the candidates and it'll come down to the uh, Biden's process for, for choosing a cabinet-level positions. Because on the one hand, you know, having a China hand and, and an expert could be very, very helpful uh, in that relationship. On the other hand, what Biden has said is that he wants to approach China through multilateral institutions. And so having someone with deep experience uh, with the European Union who can build trust with them or, uh, you know, has been a seasoned negotiator on 
on uh, whether it's NAFTA 2.0 or TPP or other agreements, who really knows the substance of trade could be as much of a benefit, and then they would fill some of the other slots, the the sub-cabinet positions, with with people who have uh, direct China expertise. So while it could very well be a China hand, I wouldn't be surprised if it's someone who has a broader trade expertise. Absolutely. How do you think if Biden wins, um, his approach to China will, will be different to Trump's? Well, I think the f- because we don't know exactly what uh, Biden's position will be on the various uh, tranches of policy towards China that, um, my, in my opinion, where he's going towards, although this isn't based on any insider information, is it'll conduct some sort of strategic review of all of the different uh, angles of or battlefronts of the U.S.-China trade war. So he's going to look at the tariffs. He's going to look at the export controls. He's going to look at the sanctions. He's going to look at um, you know the multilateral institutions. And he's going to take all of those and he's going to look at what's been working for the American people and what hasn't. And so some of the tariffs have probably helped a bit on manufacturing, but others have hindered the uh, production of manufacturing mm-hmm. jobs. And others, you know, I think have been strategic priorities. And then when you look at other areas like Xinjiang and, and elsewhere, he's going to have to uh, incorporate a holistic policy. Um, but through that strategic review, he may be able to take uh, angles that uh, perhaps are, are less important to his policy towards China and use that as a, perhaps the basis for negotiations with China in you know some sort of, well, Trump would call it a phase two deal. Mm-hmm. Biden will probably call it the Biden deal. The Biden deal um, yeah. But you know, perhaps through that strategic review, there could be a basis for further negotiations with China and an arrest of the deterioration between the U.S.-China uh, relationship. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll be looking forward to that another twelve to fifteen rounds of negotiations <laughs> to report on. Uh, never gets old. But look, for now, that's brilliant, Ben. Thanks so much for coming in, and we'll see you soon. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to this week's US-China trade war update with me, Finbar Birmingham, at the SCMP's Political Economy Desk. Massive week ahead. We'll be on top of all of the news, so stay tuned on scmp.com. Keep up with us on Twitter, at SCMP Economy. I'm at F Birmingham, Birmingham spelt with a B-E-R, not like the city. We're going to have a busy few days, but we'll be back here same time next week. Until then... Stay safe, keep your distance, wash your hands, wear your mask. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.